All right, so today we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and this Sunday also marks the second anniversary of Woodlawn Chapel. So very exciting. I don't know if it's a birthday, an anniversary, we'll call it a birthiversary. I don't even know if that's, that's not a word for sure, but that's what we're going to call it. Um, but as the Lord would have it, of course, as we celebrate a wonderful time to come together and uh, our anniversary as a church, uh, we get to talk about uh, the end times and the rapture. So what a wonderful topic. Thank you, Lord. If God didn't have a sense of humor, uh, now you know that he does. So there we have it. First Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. And as you guys make your way to the fourth chapter of the first letter to the Thessalonians, let me remind you that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a church that he planted back in Acts chapter 17. And for Paul, he only had just three short weeks there with that church in Acts 17 before he was eventually ran out of town. And as he was ran out of town, he made his way on to Berea later in Acts 17 and then eventually to Athens. And while Paul was there in Athens with Timothy and Silas, he became very concerned over the well-being of this church in Thessalonica. Because remember, in just three weeks, they would have had to selected uh, elders, people to teach the word of God. And, and these are folks that had only known the Lord for just a few weeks. And so definitely a, an immature church, you would think, to say the least. And so Paul sends from Athens, Timothy, back up to Thessalonica to check how is the church doing. And Paul proceeds to go on from there to Corinth. And so as Paul gets word back from Timothy while he's there in Corinth, this is where he writes the letter to the Thessalonians, the word comes back that it's not that they're just doing okay, but actually in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of being persecuted, they're actually thriving as a church. They're doing amazingly well. So as Paul writes this letter, you can really break it down into two sections. Chapters 1 through 3, he gives them a personal encouragement. He goes back through to start with the encouragement of of what they had done, where they had come from. And actually, in chapter 1, verse 3, he gives us a nice, tidy little outline. He says, "Remember, I remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. I remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. And so he recollects, to begin with, their work of faith. The work of faith was to turn away from idols. And this was an amazing work of faith when you consider in a pagan society, what that also meant is everybody you knew and loved and worked with that still worshipped idols, they wouldn't talk to you any longer. And so this would have been a complete rejection of society as they turned to Christ. And so Paul encourages them saying, I remember what all you did. He then takes the next couple chapters to encourage them in their present condition to abound in love. You've done a good job loving people. Now I want you to even grow in that, to grow in love. And then for the final two chapters, he's going to talk about their future hope and speaking specifically of the return of Christ in chapters 4 and 5. And so in relationship to the return of Christ, whether we want to argue about exactly what your end times eschatology is, what you cannot deny is that the New Testament 318 times mentions the return of Jesus. He is coming back. There's no arguing that. 
And so what we see is he is returning back. And what Paul wants to make it clear about is that as this church exists, they are not appointed to wrath. We're going to get to that next week in chapter 5. And we should be encouraged by this. This actually should affect our ministry. And by the way, each and every one of you as believers, you are in ministry. I know. Take a deep breath. You are in the relationship of serving others, working with people, the people you work with, the people you live with, your family. They are who you are ministering to. It just simply means to serve. And so as we go about serving, how should it look? We should serve with a sense of urgency because Jesus is coming back, right? Getting people's affairs in order, speaking to someone, being willing to have the uncomfortable conversation that we've been avoiding for so long, but then also with eager anticipation. And the closer and closer we get to the Lord's return, how eagerly we anticipate it. Lord Jesus, come quickly, we often say. So with anticipation and with urgency is how we are to be as the New Testament church. Now, we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us, you ought to uh, how you ought to walk and to please God. And so remember, these first three chapters, Paul's been commending the church with how well they've done. But now he wants to say, look, it's not enough to just sit around and be happy with what you've done. It's about continuing. Keep going. Keep pressing in. Keep growing in this relationship. Don't rest. He's the old ball coach. It's time to get out there in the second half and get after it. Keep going. He continues in verse 2 by saying, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so he goes back to this idea of our relationship we have with God. And I shared with you last week three different relationships. First of all, through justification. This is when we first come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We are justified by grace through faith. We are actually justified. It means just as if I have never sinned positionally by believing in Jesus. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin any longer. He simply sees the blood of the Lamb, perfectly covered, positionally set aside for the Lord. But then finally, what we are striving for, the thing we are excited about for the future is glorification. What John says in 1 John chapter 3 is that when we see him as he is, we'll be as he is. I think I completely misquoted that. I'm going to go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we, shall, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall, be, we shall see him as he is. There, I got it. We shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. That's that future glorification. What we know beyond a shadow of a doubt about these earthly bodies is that they are breaking down. For some of us, at a rapid pace. These things are falling apart at the seams. And so we, we have this future hope, this excitement to know that we have a glorified body set apart, designed specifically for us, for our soul and our spirit by God. And it's an exciting thing to consider. But what does that mean for us in our present state? This is what Paul is addressing now. We are called to be sanctified. 
It's about sanctification. The, the word is also sometimes holiness. We are called to be holy for our God is holy. Set apart is what it means. And so this is a spot of continual growth for us. We are sanctified and yet we are being sanctified. We are cleansed, but we are also being cleansed. And any of us that live a normal, regular life know this to be true. I am positionally set aside at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. And yet daily, man, do I struggle. I mean, I've got battles on a daily basis to fight. So I am cleansed and yet I am being cleansed. And so what Paul is going to refer to here is talking about the cleansing of our vessel and specifically where he goes is on the topic of sexual immorality. And notice when Paul mentions sexual immorality, it's translated different ways in our Bible through different versions, but the word is actually the Greek word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. And so we see Paul encouraging them to stay away from all types of sexual immorality, including pornography. And for this pagan culture, this was a big deal because often the pagan worship would involve, you guessed it, sexual immorality. Now, how does that connect with us? Well, interestingly enough, what you find is that if you do a little bit of research that in churches today, this is a wonderful statistic, 68% of the men who attend church regularly are addicted to pornography. Now, lest that hit home with anybody and you feel like I'm just picking on you, well, the next statistic says that 50% of pastors struggle. You don't think sanctification is a big deal. We need to all take a good hard look in the mirror. And ladies, I hate to tell you, but the numbers are upwards above 30% for females that also struggle. What Satan knows beyond a shadow of a doubt is if he wants to render the vessel ineffective, he has to get inside and destroy our sanctity, to stop us from being separated, to make us like the world. And Paul's suggestion here isn't to just do better. It isn't just clean it up a little bit. It's to abstain, abstinence, to put it away. It has no business in our life. Now, why on earth is this a big deal? Let's continue in verse 6. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. And we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to an uncleanness, but in holiness. We were called to sanctity. We were called in holiness. And by participating in these things, whether it be an extramarital affair, sex before marriage, viewing pornography or taking part, the reality is it defrauds us and the other person as well. That I'm going to try not to be too graphic, but the old school locker room talk of getting a piece, we did not understand just how accurate that actually was. That when you participate in such things, you actually are taking a piece of the other person with you. And you're giving a piece of yourself to them. There is a special relationship that was designed by God intended for the marriage union and that alone. And regardless of how much we think it only affects us. I'm only doing this and it only affects me. The reality is it always affects others. It always has far-reaching consequences. When you think about 
the greatest Old Testament story we have concerning adultery in the story of David and his sin with Bathsheba. He was so certain that he had covered up this extramarital affair. He even had her husband killed. He had him put on the front lines and he was done away with. And it wasn't until Nathaniel the prophet came and revealed what God had already known had taken place in his life before it finally came out. And from then on, David's family was in complete shambles. In fact, what the Lord says is the sword will never leave your house. And what eventually resulted because of his own issues, his son Absalom eventually tries to overthrow the throne. He tries to take over for his own dad. And in the process, Ahithophel, a man named Ahithophel, joins in with Absalom to overthrow David. Now, it's important to know that Ahithophel was David's right-hand number one advisor. He was so gifted as an advisor when it came to uh, a war and all things surrounding those type of battle plans that they said that his words were like the very oracle of God. Now, this guy was some kind of an advisor, and yet he goes along with Absalom to overthrow David. And you have to wonder, why would a guy that it was his right-hand man, one of his top advisors, a friend of David, ever go along with his son to overthrow the father? And what you find is if you dig deep enough in Scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34, in a whole grouping of names, genealogies, things that we just read over like, that was awful today. I'm going to pray for a better Bible reading tomorrow. What you find is that uh, Ahithophel had a son named Iliam, whose daughter was named Bathsheba. You see, this woman who David defrauded, who he took advantage of, was Ahithophel's granddaughter. And so what rose up inside him was anger and bitterness to get even with David for the defrauding that he had done in his life. Now, what we know through Scripture, and this plays out in the lives of people all over the country regularly, is that Numbers 32 verse 23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. That certainly was the case for David. His sin found him out. And yet what grew up inside Ahithophel was anger and bitterness and unforgiveness, which is just as defrauding and dangerous as the sin. So before we get too excited about him getting even, it's important to understand the end of the story when you look at anger and bitterness. Is that Ahithophel in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23, when he realized that his plans to overthrow David were going to be thwarted and that everything he had turned his back on was a complete loss, uh, he went back to his house, we're told. He put his affairs in order, and then he hung himself. You see, bitterness always destroys the person who allows the bitter root to grow up inside them. And so if this is you, if you've been in that spot, I want to encourage you to do away with the bitterness. That bitter root has far-reaching effects on the people all around us. And in fact, in this case, between David and Ahithophel, in this whole awful scenario, it didn't just affect these men and their family, but a battle would eventually ensue that cost 20,000 men their lives. This is the far-reaching effect of what started off as sexual sin. And now you understand why God is so adamant that we do away with it. Why Paul was so adamant that we need to abstain. Now, if you're on the other side of this coin, and you've been a part of someone who has caused that kind of hurt, 
I want to encourage you that the first place to start is with the people you hurt. To confess, to lay it down at their feet and just own it. I am sorry for the pain that I have caused. And the next place to go is to the feet of Jesus and say, Father, would you forgive me? And what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That the one who still has the scars on his hand will take the scars from you and I. And so we have this beautiful opportunity to be made whole again, to be made holy, to be set apart. Now, in verse 8, Paul continues and says, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Rejection of holiness, rejection of sanctity, isn't just rejecting the person who's sharing it with you. It's actually rejecting the very word of God. It, it's going to battle with him. And guess what? I've shared with you before. When you go to war with God, guess who wins? Not you. Not by a long shot. And so God, what's beautiful about this is that when we look at it and we go, I don't know that I have the ability or the power to do away with this in my life. This has got such a hold on me, I can't get a handle on it. Notice with me in verse 8 what he says is that he has given us his Holy Spirit. You see, the Lord doesn't ask us to do these things alone. His desire is to come in and dwell in us and help us take care of it from the inside out. We just have to follow along with him and with his plan. And so allowing him to come in us is the place to start, to cleanse us from the inside out. Now, verse 9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. Now, wait a minute. I thought when we started this, we were supposed to openly go and share and be bold. But this right here, Paul says, be quiet. So is that a contradiction? No, the reality is for us, we are to pray through when to step in to speak into someone's life. Every single issue we are not called to address for someone else. We are called to step in and pray. But what Paul knows is the reality is that when we get involved, it is our nature to want to overspeak, to overshare. To, and thankfully, my pastor's not here to hear this. He would say, don't be a bucket mouth, right? Don't just spill out all over someone. But instead, the way to resist that, resist oversharing, resist gossip, resist stepping in when you're not to be involved, what the Apostle Paul says is go get your hands dirty. Go get yourself to pull in some weeds because guess where there's no gossip happening? When you're out there working. When you're busy working, you can't be running off at the mouth, and so this is an encouragement to share with people, but to also be careful with how we share and where we share. What Proverbs chapter 10 verse 19 says, that in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And so don't be one who shares a multitude, but instead show restraint and share when the Holy Spirit leads. Now verse 13 
But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And so Paul is now going to transition in the book and focus on future hope. What does their future hope look like? And he starts by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. That sounds a little harsh. It could maybe be better translated. I don't want you to lack understanding. Now, I find it fascinating that four different times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And then he gives them something to consider. Or I want you to understand this. And in those four occasions, they concern 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to be ignorant here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning Satan's strategies, the way he tries to trip us up and get in the middle of what God is up to. The third way is in relation to the nation of Israel from Romans chapter 11. And the fourth right here is concerning the rapture of the church. And I find that interesting because in the New Testament church, there are probably not four areas where we are more ignorant than these four. And yet, Scripture, if we read through it and we take it literally, what Paul is trying to say is, I want to explain this to you so that you understand, so that you are, in fact, informed in this category, so that you can have hope. That's really the point of this. It's to give us hope. And by the way, if you've ever been to a funeral where someone did not know Jesus at all, Man, oh man, there is no hope in the room when that happens. It's sad. It's, it's really an awful set of circumstances. And yet conversely, if you've been in the room when a person has loved Jesus and a believer, it is sad, yes, tears for sure, missing, no doubt. And yet what we have in that spot is hope knowing that it's just a mere matter of time before we'll be reunited with them. It's glorious how much hope can come from that. That's what Paul is saying. I don't want you to be ignorant so you're like people with no hope. He continues in verse 14 and says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him those who sleep in Jesus. Physical death means instantly being with Jesus. There's not a holding pattern or a place that we go in the meantime. That what Jesus tells, think back to the story where he's on the cross next to the thief. And what does he say to the thief? But today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say in a thousand years, in a few months, just give it some time. I'll come back and get you. No, he says today. And by that he means immediately. You will be with me. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, is this. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Then we are, we are absent from this body. We are present with Him. And man, there's a tremendous amount of hope in that right there. Now continuing in verse 15. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. 
And the dead who are in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The promise of God is for us to be with the Lord, whether we have died previously or whether we are still here when he comes back for his church. This is what Paul is saying. This is the promise. And he's sharing this with the church in Thessalonica because their concern was that those who had died previously would miss out on the rapture. They wouldn't be able to actually go and be with the Lord. And so Paul is trying to encourage them as well as educate them about the rapture. Now, One of the things I love, among lots of things I love about Calvary chapels, is that we study through the Bible verse by verse, and we also believe it to literally be true. We take a literal interpretation of the Word of God. Now, there are people that supposedly are smarter than me, higher critics and scholars, that want to take the Word of God and make it into an allegory, or make it into something metaphorical. Here's one of the problems along all kinds of other heresies with that is that what happens is that we tend to rely then on our own supposition. I'm supposing, I'm thinking in my mind that this can be true. And we begin to negate the word and the power of God. We over-spiritualize things and we don't take them literally. And so to give you an example that's happened throughout church history concerning the nation of Israel, for example... You see, for thousands of years, the church had an issue as it relates to the promises that existed in the Old Testament concerning Israel. And the problem was that in 70 AD, Rome completely wiped out Israel, completely and totally obliterated it, took the temple all the way down. Not one stone was left upon another is what Jesus said was going to happen, and it took place. And so Israel was totally wiped out and the Jewish people were sent to the four corners of the earth. They were scattered all over the place. And so as scholars would look at Scripture and they would see Old Testament promises concerning Israel, the issue was there was no Israel. And so they began to look at these things and say, how could it possibly be true what God is saying about Israel, the things that He is going to do, because it does not exist. It's not on our map anywhere. And so they began to spiritualize Israel, so much so that they actually made the church spiritual Israel. Now, one of the issues with making the church spiritual Israel is, to the good, we would receive the promises of Israel. To the bad, you have to also take the curses that go along with being spiritual Israel. The third issue is, it's not literally what Scripture said. Now, you can imagine, though, for 1,900 years, there was no Israel. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8, says this. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? This was Isaiah's question from the Lord. Shall these things happen? Shall a nation be born in a day? That is utterly impossible, especially after 1,900 years of not being in existence. In fact, no culture has been able to maintain their cultural identity, their language, and their religion past the second generation. That's roughly 160 years at the most. It's been 1,900 years. And then what transpired is World War II. 
and the atrocities of the Holocaust. Things that we, most of us, didn't have to live through that took place that were just completely unimaginable to the Jewish people as Hitler tried to, by Satan, wipe out the Jewish people. And instead, what happened is what he intended for evil, God turned for good. And on May 14th, 1948, exactly as Isaiah prophesied nearly 3,000 years earlier, came true. That a nation was born in a day. That Israel was resurrected. And all of a sudden, everything we read throughout Scripture, we can see, wait a minute. God meant that would literally take place. He intended to fulfill his promises even for a nation that seemed dead and gone. Resurrection happened right before our very eyes. Now, how does that get back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 through 17? Well, it lands us is where we stand eschatologically as a church, our end times understanding. What we have as a viewpoint is called premillennial dispensationalism. Now, for many of you, you're like, what in the world did you just say, I came to have some Asian chicken? Not to listen to premillennial blah, 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 blah. What did he say? But stick with me for just a minute. The, the word dispensation really means to give an order to a certain place or a certain time so that certain people at certain times throughout history actually receive different dispensations of God. They receive different ways to connect with God. And what I mean by that is throughout human history, what we believe is there are seven biblical dispensations. And thankfully, I have a wonderful chart that I stole off the internet for you to be able to see on the next slide if it pulls up. If not, we'll just stare at each other awkwardly. But the first dispensation we see is God being able to walk with man face to face person to person, the age of innocence. He was there in the garden with Adam and Eve. They were able to walk together in the cool of the day. I believe uh, as we are created body, soul, and spirit that Adam and Eve were actually spirit, soul, and body. Their spirit was on the outside. The reason they didn't know they were naked is they were clothed in light. They were clothed in the spirit, robes of righteousness. They were able to commute with God and commune with him in spirit and in truth. And so as they're able to communicate with the Lord and walk together, what God also gave them was choice. Because love demands a choice. Forced love isn't love at all. And so God gave them a decision to make. Will you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And they wanted to experience, experientially understand evil and good. And so they took of the tree that they were told not to, to make a decision. And so from that point forward, mankind fell. And because of that, all of us have this sinful DNA now. So thank you, Adam and Eve, for that, for passing that down to us. But lest we rail on Adam and Eve and think they were super awful, remember, they were the absolute best humanity could produce. So if you think you wouldn't fall, guarantee you, you're going down. So here's the thing. They fell. And from that point, man was then ruled by their own conscience, the second dispensation. And what we see is throughout the early parts of Genesis, as man ruled themselves, as they, their own conscience was their guide, that every man did what was right in his own eyes, that by the time we got to the judgment and the ark and Noah, that what we're told is man only did continually evil. That continually man was doing evil, forcing God to actually judge mankind. 
And so righteous Noah and his family were the only ones delivered. And as Noah exits the ark, we arrive at the third dispensation. And what we find is something interesting if you look at the text. He says, be fruitful and multiply. But then God also gives him human government. I want you to judge the earth. To actually look at the earth. And bloodshed requires bloodshed. Capital punishment was instituted for the first time there in the third dispensation which eventually leads from Noah to Abraham, who is called out of an idol-worshiping family, set apart by God to have the seed of promise in him. And so Abraham institutes this age of the promise of God that would come through him and his family, eventually leading to the Messiah. From Abraham, then, we see the age of Moses, and the law is given. Now man wants to connect. Here's a way you can connect with God. He wants to dwell, literally tabernacle among you. Here's a way in which you can do it. And the law was given. But the thing was, the law always pointed back to our failure. We could not ever do the law. It simply brought about our need for, you guessed it, a Savior. We needed grace. And so we have the age of Christ, the age of grace. God literally pouring himself into a man and then opening up scriptures, opening up the very windows of heaven for us to be welcomed in because of Christ Jesus. And so we have now the harvest of the Gentiles, both Jew and Gentile, predominantly though Gentile, coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And all that sets up the eventual millennial reign of Jesus. And so when I say we are pre-millennial, we are existing here before the millennial kingdom that is laid out for us in Scripture. And what we're told is that will begin when Jesus Christ comes down and he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and that mountain will split into two and literally a fountain will flow from his throne there in Jerusalem and he will make all things right. He will set forth a true government. He will rule and reign in all the Old Testament promises given to Israel that we wonder when will those be fulfilled. He will fulfill them throughout that thousand year reign. Now, the question is, where will we be? we will have the opportunity to reign with him as kings and priests for those who believe. And we will be taken away prior to the tribulation, which leads up to the kingdom, the millennial age, in the rapture of the church. And so to go back to the verse at hand, verse 17, then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so what we see is we are called to be caught up. The word in the Greek is harpazo. In the Latin translation, it's rapturo. It's where we get our word rapture from. It means simply to be snatched away or to be caught up quickly. Okay, all that's a lot. How does that relate back to the tribulation period? How does that relate back to all that we see through Revelation? That whole book is scary. We don't like to read it. We just avoid it as Christians because we don't understand it. And yet, if you take a literal translation of the Bible and you literally read through it, one of the beautiful things in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 that the Lord gave us is an outline. This is how to understand the letter of Revelation. Chapter 1 verse 19 Lord Jesus says to John, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, 
and the things which will take place after this. Three distinct sections in the book. The things which you have seen. What John saw was the risen Lord Jesus in all his glory. And he writes chapter 1 about that. The things which uh, are to come. He writes these letters. Excuse me. The things which are. He writes these letters in chapters 2 and 3 to seven literal churches in Asia. He speaks to them. Now these have great application for us today. But the next piece I want you to pay attention to. He says, and then the things which will take place after this. The word after this in the Greek is the word metatauta. Now, why is that important? Because when you get past chapter 3 of Revelation, right before the Great Tribulation, you come to chapter 4, verse 1, and it says this, After these things, metatauta, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the things which must take place, metatauta, after this. And John proceeds to write the rest of Revelation, all the tribulation period throughout the remainder of the book. But remember, where is John, a New Testament believer, when he's writing this? He is in heaven. The Lord said, come up here. And he was snatched away. He was taken out of the earthly scene and brought up into the heavenlies. And so what we see is a very real picture of the rapture taking place even there in Revelation, which can be so hard for us to understand. Now, another place we see an example of the rapture in Genesis chapter 19 is in the story of Lot. Remember, God comes down, he's going to place judgment on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham finds out about this. God communicates with him what's getting ready to happen. And Abraham prays on behalf of his nephew Lot there in Sodom. And what transpires is the angels go to Sodom and it's so wicked, all kinds of atrocities taking place. But Lot, knowing just enough, he brings the angels into this house and they tell him, look, we got to get you out of here. We've got to take you away quickly before the wrath that is to come. And in fact, when you look at the text, what they tell Lot is, we can't do what we came to do until we remove you. And so they take him away as if by force they snatch him away in his family before God's wrath is poured out. And so we have, again, our stance on the rapture of the church. Now, all of you are shaking your head like, what in the world just took place right there? Why is all this important? Verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We are to be comforted with this knowledge. That we are to be delivered from the wrath to come. That the very worst the world can throw at me is the closest to hell I will ever see. That God does not intend to pour his wrath out upon me. I may not have it all figured out. I may not have it all down. But this is what he desires for me is to be comforted in that. Not to look at other people who aren't going to heaven or to look at this earth and go, I can't wait for the rapture so I can say, see you losers. Stink town. Gonna burn in hell anyway. Not at all. Not to look at them in judgment. But to actually have a desire to have that hard conversation. Because we are
beautifully. When you look through Old Testament typology, we are a bride of Christ. And when you consider our relationship with him as the bride, one, one last quick story, I promise. But when you look Old Testament traditions at a traditional Jewish wedding, what would take place is the bride would get herself ready, be prepared for her groom, who was off at the father's house building a room that was meant for them to reside. And the bride wouldn't know when the groom was coming back. She would have to just be ready, be on the lookout. This is why Jesus gives the parable of the ten virgins to be ready. They are called to be ready for the return of the groom, not knowing when he would come back. The groom would then come back all at once, take the bride away, and for seven days they would spend together, just in beautiful communion with one another much like a seven-year tribulation period where the bride of Christ is snatched away. And then all at once, at the end of the seven days, what would happen is the bride and groom would be presented to the entire group gathered together, the whole congregation of people. As the bride and groom, behold, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. This is how we, as the bride of Christ, are to be presented to the world at his second coming, you see. God goes to great lengths to communicate this with us, not to confuse us or to have us be ignorant, but actually to encourage us and to comfort. And when we receive that comfort, we now have the ability to comfort others. And I do believe that every single person who believes in Jesus will be raptured. It may not be while we're still alive, but if we draw our last breath, we will be snatched away quickly to be present with the Lord, you see. This is what Paul is trying to communicate. They didn't miss out on anything. They will be a part of everything all together. Now, as we conclude, why in the world do we go through all that? Why do we believe in a literal translation of the scripture. I was surprised this week while doing some research, and these numbers are a little bit old, but from a 2008 Pew Research study, it showed that 24% of people believe that the Bible can be understood and believed literally. Now, at, at this time in 2008, 80% of this country proclaimed to be Christian. That means out of those 80%, 24% believed the Bible could actually be taken at its word. How terrifying is that? But when we take the word of God literally, what we can glean from this is that if I believe his word literally, then there is a literal heaven and a literal hell. And that my sin literally condemns me and separates me from God. And that is literally terrifying. But praise the Lord, I need a literal Savior. And he has literally poured himself into a man and given himself on my behalf. And as a result, I now have an opportunity to spend all of eternity with him quite literally. And you see the joy that comes about with this. And the only thing he asks in return is that we believe.
that we believe in our heart and we confess with our tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's all he's asking, to literally save us for all of eternity. And so here in just a few minutes, I'm going to invite you guys to come up and take a communion cup. And the only thing that we ask for you to participate in communion with us is that you be a believer of Jesus Christ. There's no membership requirements. We don't have anything like that. Just, just partake. Is that you literally believe that he is the son of God and he gave his life on your behalf. And what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that if you're brave enough to do that, the Lord is good enough to come into you and change you for all of eternity. From the inside out. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it in my own life. I know it to be true. I see it in the people in this room. He's willing to do that. And as we have the opportunity to take communion, if you're not sure if you can take it or not, I want to encourage you right where you sit to just say that prayer. Lord Jesus, I believe. I want you in me. I want you living. I want you to change me from the inside out. And then I want you to feel free to partake. Now, if you're here today, like many of you are, and you're a believer, here's the thing to consider. Is that Jesus Christ has died on your behalf. And his desire for you is to abound in love. And that the only thing holding us back from abounding in love is whatever we have allowed in our vessel. That what I have allowed in my life is direct, directly proportional to how much I can love and abound. And so when I wonder, why do things not look like love around me? Why am I struggling in this arena? It's because I have not been willing to set that apart and let Jesus take care of that forever. And so what I want to encourage you to do is reflect upon that. What things have I allowed that the Holy Spirit doesn't want to condemn? He doesn't condemn. Condemnation directs us towards hell. He wants to convict. Conviction directs us towards Jesus. He wants to convict us and give us an opportunity to abound in that very area of our lives. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we can take you at your word. We thank you that we can take a literal translation of your Bible and we can literally apply it to our lives. Father, we praise you. And right now, Lord, would you please examine our hearts, examine the things that we have allowed to take place. And Father, would you please stomp those things out? Send those lives right back to hell where they belong. Lord, help us drive away the root of bitterness and unforgiveness. Help us, Lord, to forgive the person that's the hardest to in our life, and that is usually ourselves. Father, we want to abound in love as a people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you as Jake and Michaela play to come and take the elements back with you, and then we will take of these uh, all together.